To the, uh, hey, uh, thank you so much for coming out to the third Socolow Public Square event in Phoenix. Uh, my name is Gregory Rodriguez. I'm the founding director of Socolow Public Square, uh, which means public square in Spanish, so forgive my joke if you heard it, which means our legal name is Public Square, Public Square. Uh, we are a project of the Center for Social Cohesion at Arizona State University. Uh, we like to think of ourselves as a living magazine, an innovative blend of on-the-ground events and online idea journalism. Our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. All our events are free. They are all followed by uh, receptions uh, that, uh, to which you are all invited to drink uh, some uh, wine and some beer to speak further with the evening's featured guests and with each other. We're firm believers that community is built on at least some modicum of alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! <laughs> Um, tonight, we're really pleased to have um, Changing Hands Bookstore here. Uh, they will be selling, yes, give them applause, please. They will be selling copies of Andrew Ross's new book, Bird on Fire, Lessons from the World's Least Sustainable City. If you haven't already, please uh, pick up a copy. Um, Based in L.A., uh, Socolo uh, is now bringing our unique model of civic engagement to Phoenix, and we're grateful to the support and generosity of uh, ASU President Michael Crow. Um, we'd like to invite you to check us out online at SocoloPublicSquare.org, where the conversation continues with our original daily content, and you can keep an eye on upcoming events as well in the Phoenix area. If you haven't uh, shut off your telephones, please do. Oh, wow, you guys are much better than the people in L.A. You, you, yeah, they get to it like 15 minutes in. Thank you. Um, and again, please join us um, at the post-game reception in the lobby uh, for, uh, for, uh, for a glass of wine. Uh, and now I'm pleased to introduce Mr. Andrew Ross. Andrew Ross is a professor of social and cultural analysis at New York University, a contributor to The Nation, The Village Voice, and Art Forum. He is the author of many books, including Nice Work If You Can Get It, Life and Labor in Precarious Times, and The Celebration Chronicles, Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Property Value in Disney's New Town. His new book is Bird on Fire, Lessons from the World's Least Sustainable City. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Andrew Ross. Good evening, people. Uh, thank you so much to Zocalo for inviting me uh, here tonight. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to see some familiar faces in the audience, uh, faces of people uh, who I interviewed for this book. And I want to take the opportunity to thank you in advance uh, for your words and thoughts, although you're not responsible for the book uh, in any way whatsoever. Um, Perhaps uh, you've noticed that climate activists and public officials keep returning from these big UN climate summits in a very deep funk about government inaction. And some thoughtful people, even if the political obstacles to carbon policy making were to dissolve overnight, some thoughtful people have concluded that it may already be too late to do anything to avert drastic climate change. Better to accept the foreseeable consequences by trying to anticipate and adapt to the worst case scenarios. 
Now, for those of us who are, are allergic to despair, and I hope many of you are, um, we look to cities for evidence that progress is being made. And today, it's fair to say there's a thriving sustainable cities movement in all of our developed countries of the world and in many developing countries. Uh, mayors, city mayors toot their horns whenever their cities move up in the national sustainability rankings. And there's even uh, a race afoot to, uh, to claim the title of America's greenest city. And uh, Mayor Phil Gordon threw Phoenix's hat into that ring last year. Now, why cities? Well, unlike state and federal lawmakers who rule on energy regulation, mayors and city managers are not swayed by the fierce lobbying powers of the fossil industry, so they're relatively more free to push green policies. Cities, without doubt, are on the front line. They generate 80% of the, of the world's carbon emissions. And um, it's only in dense urban environments that low-carbon living is possible on a mass scale. Even without a decisive shift in energy supply, more compact patterns of urban development can deliver a jumbo boost to decarbonization. But, and this is, and it's a big but, but, if City Hall's sustainability plans are targeted only to populations that can afford a sustainable lifestyle, then these plans are part of the problem, will be part of the problem, and not part of the solution. They will further contribute to a social geography, which is evident in many of our cities, that could loosely be described as eco-apartheid. And this is a term, eco-apartheid is a term for the green gap that Van Jones introduced, which I find quite valuable. What does it mean? It means that increasingly we're seeing how neoliberal investment patterns, consumer niche marketing, and government policies favored by moneyed voters are succeeding in fostering showpiece pockets of green living in our big cities. But these oases increasingly coexist with human and natural sacrifice zones on the other side of the tracks where populations have to fight to breathe clean air and drink uncontaminated water. Now, if, if you read the literature about urban sustainability, you find there's a lot that's been written about showpiece, environmental showpieces like Portland or uh, Curitiba in Brazil or Reykjavik, Freiburg or even Singapore. Uh, the success of these cities in reaching their sustainability goals have been much written about and are much emulated. More vulnerable or recalcitrant places have other things to teach us. How we go about making green decisions or whether we even have the wherewithal to make the right ones. And that's why I chose to, to come here and research and, and write my book about the struggle of, of Metro Phoenix to become a resilient metropolis. It's faced with much larger environmental challenges and considerably more resistance from its elected officials than havens of green consciousness like Seattle or San Francisco. But that is why I think Phoenix may prove to be a more useful bellwether of sustainability. If Phoenix can become sustainable, then it can be done anywhere. That at least was the premise that, that drove my investigations here. Even if it's not the world's least sustainable city, it is a close contender 
and in any event, I don't think the title is worth arguing over. More than any other U.S. metropolis, however, Phoenix has channeled the national appetite for unrestrained growth, and as I'm sure most of you know, that American habit of growth is consuming a vastly disproportionate share of the world's resources, including its carbon allotment. If there, and if there's any chance, if there's any chance of altering that pattern significantly, then the results have to show up in places like this in central Arizona. The challenges, as I'm sure you know, are quite formidable. We have less than seven inches of rain annually. Our most dependable water supplies are pumped 300 miles uphill from the over-allocated and drought-beset flow of the Colorado River. This region is deluged with over 330 days of bright sunshine, and yet less than 2% of the energy is drawn from solar sources. And from 1990 to 2007, Arizona increased its carbon emissions faster than any other American state. And that was at a rate more than three times the national average. Once a haven for TB sufferers seeking respiratory relief, by 2005, the city's infamous brown cloud was drawing the lowest national grades from the American Lung Association for air quality in both ozones and particulates. And of all U.S. cities, Phoenix flew the highest in the race to profit from the housing bubble, and it has fallen the furthest as a result of the land crash. Population growth has been the only real driver of its economy for some time. Building homes for people who build homes, as one of my informants put it, has been a core industry here. And to cap it all, the city which already already boasts the hottest summer temperatures in the northern hemisphere. The city's in the bullseye of climate change, according to the state's leading climatologist, Jonathan Overpeck. It's predicted to heat up and dry out faster than any other region. And this uh, summer's August, which I'm sure, sure most of you recall, was the hottest on record. Even the, even the scorpions were driven indoors uh, by the heat resulting in a major spike in indoor stings. So uh, even after decades of very lavish federal spending, which continues, lavish federal spending on public works and water infrastructure, after decades of defense industry payrolls that really underpinned the rise of the Sun Belt, or what, what is sometimes called by scholars the Gun Belt, even with all of this government assistance, the stark vulnerability of the Sonoran Desert habitat here makes it a questionable location for four million people, let alone the nine million people predicted to live here in the megapolitan region, the, the, the so-called Sun Corridor that will stretch from Prescott to Tucson in the years to come. That said, many of the world's fastest growing cities are also in semi-arid regions, and so as climate change intensifies, they may well share the same destiny as Metro Phoenix. So the lessons that we can draw from central Arizona may turn out to be applicable all over the world, but especially in the swelling megacities of Africa and the Middle East and Asia. What methods do you adopt if you're someone like me who comes to write a book about the sustainability of a metro region? I have, I've written several book-length ethnographies but these were studies of relatively bounded communities, 
a small town in Florida, a new media company in New York, uh, uh, a skilled labor market in East China. Metro Phoenix, of course, is not a bounded community, and it was a much harder nut to crack. So after completing my preliminary research, I decided I was going to interview at some length uh, 200 of the city's more thoughtful, influential, and active citizens about the region's prospects for becoming sustainable. I cast a very wide net because I was aiming for broad coverage and so some of the folks, uh, I'll just list some of the areas I interviewed in. State lawmakers, government professionals in urban planning and economic development, real estate brokers and attorneys, policy analysts, land developers and home builders, nonprofit operatives, small business owners, civil rights champions, energy lobbyists, solar entrepreneurs, engineers and technicians, utility regulators, industrial ecologists, banking economists, artists, curators and gallerists, community activists, affordable housing providers, land trust officials, opinion journalists, urban farmers, archaeologists, tribal activists and officials, green business advocates, environmental justice watchdogs, trade unionists, university administrators, and of course a whole host of scholars uh, in the sustainability field, which is uh, a huge uh, part of uh, ASU's research now. So I combined their experience and knowledge of the metropolis from the interviews with my own assessment of the appetite for change in the region. The result was supposed to be a kind of composite picture of the region's potential for a greener future along with, and this is very important, along with the many obstacles that lay in its path. So from a methodological perspective, the advantage of, uh, of what is qualitative ethnography is that it offers um, a corrective or an alternative to the over-reliance on the sustainability indicators that city officials use to rate their performance and you find that these sustainability indicators are all quantitative in nature. Um, more solar roofs, less airborne particulates, more transit riders, uh, less water use per capita, more housing density, less golf courses, and so on and so forth. They all, they're all um, um, managerial norms of measurement. And metrics like these convey a purely physical understanding of how cities can be greened. And I think they suggest that the ecological crisis can be fixed by making slight technical adjustments to people's habits and interactions with their daily environment. By contrast, there are no indexes, there are no metrics for measuring the social sustainability of a population. No metrics for, for measuring environmental justice. And yet, among the findings of my research was that the key to urban sustainability lies less in physical or technical fixes than in aspects of social cooperation, such as whether communities can learn how to renounce self-interested hoarding and practice mutual aid, whether the well-provisioned can respond to the environmental claims of the poor by strengthening democratic inclusion, whether they can promote access for populations that are habitually ignored by the green marketing of the private sector and also by the green city campaigning of City Hall. 
And finally, whether officials in City Hall will accept the risk levels of the most vulnerable populations in their cities, the canaries in the mine, whether they will accept these risk levels as the baseline for green reforms and policy making. Now, all of these things are elements of social character, I would say, and trying to measure them quantitatively is like counting grains of sand with a fork. But I, f I, I found that the, these qualitative methods that I used were, uh, were useful to me in, in a field that's usually dominated by quantitative measures. So what did I find? On issue after issue, I found that Metro Phoenix was a very good example of deficits in equity and that under those circumstances, the efforts of its cities or counties, the efforts at green governance on the part of cities and counties was primarily a recipe for managing rather than cor correcting inequalities. The most obvious example was the distribution of pollution hazards which show a long-standing pattern of burden loaded against Indian reservations or poor neighborhoods dominated by minorities. Communities treated as dumping grounds for waste disposal and noxious industry are a world apart from those who can afford the aromatic desert breezes and mountain preserves of North Phoenix, North Scottsdale, or Paradise Valley. There's nothing really sustainable in the long run about one population living the green American dream while across town, another is trapped in pestilence. The low-lying geography of South Phoenix, for example, hosts the single dirtiest zip code in America and is home to 40% of the city's hazardous industrial emissions. And if you look at the inner uh, ring suburbs of East Phoenix and West Phoenix, uh, the suburbs that hosted the Cold War high-tech defense industries you'll now find that they're saddled with the poisonous legacy of these defense industries, some of the worst groundwater contamination in the nation. I brought along a map as part of your handout. If you just take a quick look at that map, it's, uh, it's a map of the contamination plumes in the groundwater in, uh, in, in central Phoenix areas. And... Um, the Arizona Department of Environmental Quality has maps of uh, single sites of um, contamination sites, but uh, they, they, they don't have an overall map like this, so I asked my research assistant to put together a composite map of all of the contamination plumes, and, and he'd never made a map before, but I think he did a pretty good job. Um, so you, you won't find that in the Arizona DEQ uh, website, and, and in addition, uh, Steve Brittle, who's here this evening, told me about a recent report, uh, Joint Air Toxics Assessment Program Study from 2006, which has recently gotten a lot of attention, uh, that has to do with vapor intrusion. And vapor intrusion is soil gas which enters overlying buildings that are above the contamination plumes. Most people really don't know, certainly most new arrivals in Phoenix have no idea about the poisoned groundwater that flows beneath them, especially in downtown areas, the ones that work in downtown areas. But those who do assume that, you know, it's all underground. But uh, soil gas works its way up 
into buildings that are above ground. And this is becoming a big issue. And in fact, the Phoenix examples are, uh, have, have, uh, have brought down a lot of national scrutiny on the issue. They're sort of test case examples. So um, by contrast, these inner ring suburbs in South Phoenix, by contrast, it's to populations in the affluent northern reaches of the metro area that most of the technical green innovations are being marketed. The solar technologies, the hybrid cars, the low impact landscaping, green building techniques and the like, adding to the range of eco options already available to affluent residents, making them the, the kind of environmental equivalent of new apps on their iPhones. So the question is, how do we prevent these areas from turning into eco-enclaves, eco hoarding resources and knowledge about sustainability from others? Either the green wave has to lift all boats, or we will find ourselves left with a very dismal lifeboat ethic, which was first proposed by the ecologist Garrett Hardin, in which those not already on board are left behind. A similar lesson applied to the other areas where, which I broke down my research, and these would be the urban growth machine, downtown revitalization, water management, solar energy, and immigration policy. Traditionally in Phoenix, uh, concerns about the environmental costs of urban sprawl have revolved around the toll on non-renewable water supplies, the impact on air quality of commuting patterns, and encroachment on fragile desert ecosystems. By contrast, the steady transfer of resources, jobs, and wealth and amenities away from center city areas to the suburbs and urban fringe have attracted much less attention as environmental concerns. Planning, taxation, and energy policies that favor low-density suburban life have been tilted against the needs and aspirations of central city residents, whose neighborhoods are now food deserts far removed from decent employment and amenity centers. Green modifications to upscale master plan communities on the urban fringe will not remedy the indifference. The construction of, say, you know, higher density, new urbanist style developments on the fringe, uh, like, you know, and one that already exists, Verado, out near the White Tank Mountains, and proposed large scale new urbanist developments like Superstition Vistas or um, the Desert Proving Grounds of the Mesa Gateway Complex, these will not do much to reduce the region's carbon footprint and are likely to enlarge it greatly if they give a new lease of life to the growth machine. By contrast, a concerted program of equity-minded green investment in the hundreds of vacant lots that dot central urban areas would transform and humanize the character of a metropolis that is still in the deepest financial hole of any U.S. Citizen, city. Sunflowers, I think, are a very good start, but only a start. For most urban planners and quality of life advocates, downtown revitalization has been the preferred antidote to sprawl, and it has not bypassed Phoenix, as I'm sure you know. In the battle over downtown Phoenix, there's a whole two chapters in my book about the battle over downtown Phoenix. Artist communities have played a huge role. They've been able to complicate, if not transcend, the role that is usually 
uh, allotted to them in other cities as involuntary agents of gentrification, contending with developers bent on refurbishing downtown for a new money class, artists, activists in uh, the Downtown Voices Coalition in Roosevelt Row or in Grand Street have pushed for municipal policies that favor a sustainable downtown featuring income diversity, affordable housing, mixed-use zoning, and fine-grained planning. And I take the opportunity to salute the work of uh, Downtown Voices. In my book, I hold these efforts up as a model of civic idealism. That said, their success in getting heard at City Hall, considerable success in getting heard at City Hall, is not matched by the low-income residents of downtown areas, many of whom are being chased out of town by the crackdown on immigrants. Unless the needs of these residual residents are adopted as priorities, the resulting destabilization of their neighborhoods will leave them almost as vulnerable as the victims of subprime lending many of whom are now stranded in the foreclosure belts in the outer rings. Water, I'll deal with water very briefly because consciousness about water resources is, is, is inherent to the far western lifestyle. As you know, the southwest has been on a drought watch 12 years and counting, despite the outsized winter runoff to the upper Colorado River. And so the cost of bringing in the next bucket of water is certain to escalate. If and when water shortages begin to show up, the capacity of cross-town communities to share their supplies with one another will be a very telling test, if not the most telling test, of resilience and mutual aid. The Hohokam here in the Phoenix Basin, of course, faced a similar test of regional cooperation and ultimately failed joining the growing list of ancient riverine civilizations that did not respond well, sociologically speaking, to the tightening of resources. And all prudent estimates I could find suggest that it's not too late to discourage the growth in the urban periphery of the very populations who will be most hard hit by water shortages because it's those populations on the fringe and in exurban areas that will be the most hard hit. Again, more briefly, uh, in solar energy, because m much of my chapter in solar energy is highly technical, central Arizona has some of the best solar exposure in the world. And so fledgling plans to harness the state's most abundant natural resource are the one major hope of recovery for the economy. It seems, however, that the Arizona legislature is zealously committed to throwing obstacles in the path of renewable energy at a time when concerted support is most needed. The nuclear energy certainly is a preferred option of the state GOP. No less contested is the bold requirement for distributed energy generation set by the state's utility commission. The Arizona Corporate Commission, I think, has done well to implement a very generous distributed generation uh, quota or carve-out. Um, but it doesn't help matters, in my view, by allowing the state's utilities to impose a regressive surcharge and all of their customers, including renters and poor homeowners, in order to subsidize roof panel installation by the well-heeled ones. This is a clear example, I think, of inequity in action. The last object of my uh, study, which is immigration policy, or anti-immigration policy, 
is one that hardly crops up ever in discussions about sustainability, but it should do so in my opinion. The state's increasingly harsh anti-immigration laws are certainly spurred by the anxiety of Anglos about losing demographic and political dominance to the burgeoning Latino population here. But I think these, uh, these inhospitable responses are also shaped by what I call neo-Malthusian fears, stoked up by nativist groups about population pressure on scarce resources. Now one of the things I found here was that there is a causal environmental link between Arizona's documented migrants and their Anglo tormentors here in Maricopa County. Climate change is fast drying out northern Mexico. Like climate change doesn't stop at the border. It's fast drying out northern Mexico. And so you could conclude that it's a significant portion of the border crossers to Arizona can already be classed as climate migrants or climate refugees. In effect, the carbon emissions that are pumped out over the skies of Phoenix are responsible, however indirectly, they are responsible for displacing the migrants from their land and livelihoods. If you accept that causal link, then the border crossers should at the very least have a legitimate claim on sanctuary. They should have, they probably should have their own carbon conscious version of the response which was uh, offered by post-colonials when they first settled in cities like London and Paris. They said, we are here because you were there. And the carbon conscious version of that would be something like, we are here because your lifestyle has deprived us of our livelihoods. Not as pithy as the first one, but I need to work on that. I think you get the picture though. However, nativists seem hell-bent on turning the state into the kind of exclusion zone that is very distinctive of resource hoarding. So it's fair for me, I think, to conclude, and I do in the book, that Arizona's bitter fight over immigration is perhaps the first real skirmish in the climate wars to come. When the threat of global warming will increasingly be used to shape immigration policies around a vision of affluent nations or regions as heavily fortified resource islands. Is this enclave mentality already at work? Internationally, you could say the ugly side of the debate about carbon emissions has centered on who has the right to go on polluting and which portions of the world's population will be sacrificed. Even as cities in affluent countries compete with each other in national sustainability rankings, the same kinds of triage calculations are probably already being made locally about which populations are to be protected and which will be cut loose. Arizona's Latinos, who are a burgeoning 30% of the state's population and over, well over 40% here in Phoenix, Arizona's Latinos have been put on notice about which triage category they are destined for. And the trauma and the stigma of their criminalization under these new laws may well endure for generations. This guarantee that race relations will be toxic for many years to come does not augur well for social sustainability. And so the lesson, I think, offered by Arizona's treatment of immigration may well be very instructive to other regions 
as and when climate migration escalates, as it surely will. I mean, the, 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 the estimates of how many climate migrations there are already in the world is, you know, in the hundred millions. Uh, let me just end on a more optimistic note. One of the things I develop in the book is a case study of the Gila River Indian community, the 3,000, 360,000-acre chunk of, of largely undeveloped tribal land which stands directly in the growth path of the the Sun Corridor mega region. The Akimel Odom are the Pima Indians who, uh, who are the majority tribal group on the reservation were oasis farmers in the 19th century. Among other things, they were the original Samaritans uh, lionized for helping to rescue and provision Anglo emigrants who were bound for the California gold rush and were coming along the Gila Trail towards uh, California. In the late 19th century, upriver Anglo settlers began to cut off the Gila River's natural flow. The Pima were rendered destitute as a result and their health declined rapidly and today this population hosts the world's highest incidence of adult onset diabetes. For 80 years, however, as I'm sure most of you know, they waged war in the courts to regain their water until a 2004 settlement brought a long struggle for environmental justice, which is what it was, to a triumphal conclusion. As a result of the settlement, the community won almost 25% of the state's water allocation from the Colorado River and intends to use the water rights to restore as much as 150,000 acres of farmland. So delivering justice to the Pima means what or meant what? It meant or it means that a large portion of the region's water resources, available water resources, will be sequestered from the growth machine. Instead of supplying a whole new generation of low-density tracked housing, the water can now be used to produce healthy local food for the population of central Arizona. And if non-industrial agriculture prevails, and that's by no means a foregone conclusion, given the struggle that that will entail on on the reservation, but if non-industrial agriculture prevails, then the result will be a double win for carbon reduction. Surely this is how a green polity ought to work, redressing the claims of those who have been aggrieved and doing it in a way that extends long-term benefits for everyone. Now, I'll just repeat that as a principle. A green polity ought to redress the claims of those who have been aggrieved and, and do it in a way that extends long-term benefits for everyone. Now, if all responses to environmental justice were to follow suit, then that would be a welcome model, I think, for moving forward. The Gila River example, I, I concede, is not a very easily replicable one, but I think the guiding spirit is a sound one, the guiding spirit of the, um, of the formulation that I repeated. So what if the key to sustainability lies in innovating healthy pathways out of poverty for populations at risk rather than marketing green gizmos to those who already have many options to choose from? These are not mutually exclusive options, of course, but the lessons I took away from my own research here convinced me of the pressing need for clear alternatives to the eco-apartheid syndrome 
that afflicts Phoenix and so many other cities. Proponents of green capitalism argue that putting a proper price on all natural resources is the best way of protecting the renewable ones. They promote the view that a post-fossil economy can be sufficiently driven by the market segment known as LOHAS. LOHAS is Lifestyles of Health and Sustainability. It's a market estimated globally at $500 billion, covers almost 20% of adult consumers in OECD countries. LOHAS evangelists more or less assume that reforming the high carbon consumption of folks like us, I'm assuming most of us are in the 20%, may be enough alone to stave off the scenarios of eco-collapse. The problem, as Van Jones has pointed out, the problem is that the carbon savings to be gotten out of targeting the 20% cannot possibly outweigh the commercial neglect of the other 80%. If we're to avert climate change, the green wave has to lift all vessels. And so building a low-carbon economy by targeting only the low-house demographic will end up doing little more than adding a green gloss to patterns of chronic inequality. Likewise, placing all of our faith in technical fixes and clean tech fixes cedes far too much decision-making to a closed circle of experts who, regardless of their technical prowess, usually have no power to prevent the uneven application of their solutions, let alone the unintended consequences of those solutions. To conclude then, I do, I do want to say that despite the odds against them, in each of the areas that I research, I found many, many activists, advocates, and practitioners here who were intent on changing the rules and patterns of urban life and, and, and I salute those of you who are, who are in the audience that I, that, I, that I know and interviewed and many others who I didn't who are also in the audience. Even those who were most preoccupied with their own neighborhoods, sometimes their own blocks in the neighborhoods, had an eye on the citywide original consequence of their ideas and actions. Most of them took it for granted that this city is a real proving ground for sustainability and were very quick to accept that model outcomes or successful outcomes in their own backyard might have an impact well beyond this city and well beyond the southwest. Some had even come to share the belief that Phoenix was an exemplar of sorts if only because the challenges faced by a growth-dependent desert city seem particularly insurmountable. They're certainly right in concluding that cities are on the front line. And if urbanization is an open-ended process, and this is something that Jane Jacobs fervently believed, if urbanization is an open-ended process, then the greening of cities like this one is a grand act of improvisation. Maybe the last heroic effort in places like this where it can still make an appreciable difference. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Ross. We're now moving towards our Q&A portion of our program. If you could please raise your hand. There are two of us going around with microphones. Jennifer's on that side, over here. Just raise your hands and please come out to the aisles to us. We are recording this, so please speak into the microphone. And um, first question, Jennifer. I have a question on your right. Hello. 
I am one of those evangelists that you think are doomed to fail. And you touched on many points, but the one I'd like to challenge is the idea that anyone would hoard green technology. It doesn't seem like there's any examples of this throughout history. I mean, the whales were saved by new technology that allowed petroleum to give us light. Phones, cars, all of this has become from the top down. I have green technology in my briefcase right now that I'm very enthusiastic to get out there in architecture. So could you address the idea that anyone would want to hoard that sort of thing? Well, I, I guess, I mean, there's a, there, there, there are short answers to that, and there's a long answer that sees uh, the hoarding uh, in, in over a larger period, a larger duration. Uh, look at the Limits to Growth report, which, uh, which appeared in 1972. This was the report that put on notice the world's industrial elites that growth, uh, unrestrained growth, was unsustainable over the, over the, long, over the long haul. And I think one of the responses to, um, to the Limits of Growth report by, by its advocates and its writers who did, uh, who did uh, revisions of it uh, 30 years later was that the message simply didn't get through, and elites have been in denial about this. I think uh, the, the, the evidence from the last uh, uh, 40 years almost has been that the message did get through, and that the, the polarization, the redistribution of wealth and resources in the course of the last 40 years or so is very much evidence of hoarding. That the message got through and elites have been squirreling away resources and, uh, and amenities and wealth and technologies for the last 30 years in ways that are fairly well documented. So I think over the long haul, and, and, one of, and that's one of the, the reasons why we have right now uh, a movement like Occupy Wall Street, which is an extraordinarily uh, revivifying movement, um, is, uh, is precisely to, uh, uh, to oppose this kind of hoarding. That's the much larger picture. I have another question on your right. Thank you. Hi, my name is Ray Alfini, and I have a response to that. I've been, <clears throat> I'm an engineer. I've been involved in solar energy for uh, since the 70s, and SRP and APS have known about the abilities of solar thermal water heating to be very advantageous for, as a quality of life issue for all people. And just recently, are we now getting more and more involved in putting solar thermal systems on roofs? And this has been around for 50 years or more. Israel's almost on 90% solar water heated. So yes, there is hoarding going on. Thank you. And why is that, Ray? Why is that? You've thought uh, a lot about are. this, I know. <laughs> well, there's a lot of money to be lost. You know, and so people want, you know, it's, it's a control issue. I mean. Uh, do I have a question? Oh, I'm sorry. I just was responding to, is there hoarding going on? Yes, there is. And that's a very common one. Okay. Thank you. Okay. That's a good example. We have a question over here on your left. Hi. Uh, my name is Ed Finn. Uh, I'd like to hear you talk a little bit more about constructive progress, talking about South Phoenix, for example, and um, maybe one of, one of the challenges, right, is, is crushing economic recession and the challenges that our city has been facing and uh, 
maybe, you know, trying to adjust from one very expansionist kind of housing development into something more like an ecologically conscious urban, uh, you know, high efficiency form of development. How do you combine the ecological with, you know, the, with the kind of commercial interest that you'd need to, to get to make, to, how do, you, how do you combine the ideal with the practical in Phoenix? Uh, I'm not really sure if that's my job. Um, it's, uh, it's way above my pay level. Uh, I mean, my, my, my job was really was to come here and, and, and research the obstacles and, and survey the landscape and try and put together this composite picture. Uh, and, and in a sense, you know, if, if my book is used to pursue questions like that, then I'll be very happy. Uh, but it's, it, I, can't, I can't give you a sort of uh, uh, an, an off-the-cuff response to this. It's a very big question. Um, I think I think the the, the the principles that I've laid out that uh, that are based on equity are the ones that uh, that would probably frame my response if if I had one to that question and, and on the spot as it were uh, the green governance um, and technical fixes and commercial investment if they really are only um, uh, aimed at targeting uh, quick returns, if they're not aimed at redressing grievances, if they're not aimed at redressing civil rights, if they're not aimed at um, uh, uh, ameliorating the conditions of those who've been neglected and ignored by the last 60 years of growth in this city, then I think they, they will end up reinforcing the condition of eco-apartheid. And that's more of a caveat. But I think it's a caveat that could and should be borne in mind for those who pursue the solutions to your question. I have another question on your right. Well, you got that, thank you. Um, I believe we've met. Yes, uh, I interviewed Mr. George <laughs> Brooks. Yes. Oh, okay, my name is George, George Brooks. And within the context of your research and looking at South Mountain, that's the proper name for it now, not South Phoenix, uh, it's changed. Um, but within that context, and your content in your research, how does one harness the significant social, economic, and environmental resources this area has to create value and a higher quality of life for everyone there, knowing the vast differences that we have there in, in social economic conditions? You mean how, how do you use South Phoenix or South Mountain as a, as a baseline well, for policy making? For policymaking, as an example, the area is geographically isolated, freeway, river, freeway, and it, but it has great resources and great assets, social, economic, environmental, South Mountain Park, Rio Salado, a lot of backyards, a lot of parks, a lot of people, some poor, some not. How does one, within your research, how does one capture all of those resources, enhance them to create jobs and a higher quality of life for everyone there? That's a significant question for sustainability. Um, Phoenix is one of the worst examples of job sprawl, just to choose one of those. Uh, you know, job sprawl relates to um, the, uh, the, the ratio of uh, central city residents who have access to jobs in those locations. I think in the last study, 
only only 15% of the jobs that were located in central city areas were actually employing people who lived in central city areas. Uh, any concerted green jobs campaign would put jobs in South Phoenix and other central city areas rather than on the urban fringe, which has been the tendency uh, for all jobs and all employment uh, programs um, in, in this city. Um, there's no reason why um, uh, light rail shouldn't be uh, extended into South Phoenix. Uh, and, and there's absolutely no reason um, why uh, political representation um, and really the story about environmental justice that I, that, I, that I tell in the book has a lot to do with, uh, uh, with lack of political representation over the course of the last 60 years here. Some of that's been remedied, but not fully. So these are just three examples, I would say. Another question over here on your left. My name is Ben. Um, I just was curious, through the course of your research, what did you, what kind of conclusions did you come to about the attitudes of people just kind of in the Phoenix area in general regarding green policy? Like, was it, did it have a positive tone overall, or, or is it, how, how, how did it sound, I guess, is my question. Um, the, you know, the thing that surprised me the most, actually, was how very few people had an apocalyptic vision of Phoenix's future. <laughs> Hard, hardly, any, hardly anyone harbored a vision of eco-collapse for Phoenix who live here. And there are many outsiders, as you know, who, who, have, this, who have this apocalyptic vision of, of Phoenix. And the town where I live in New York, it's a favorite thing of New Yorkers to imagine the you know apocalyptic destruction of our city. There's a whole uh, you know there's there's a whole library of, of films and books that portray this. Um, I couldn't find the only one I could find in Phoenix was a, a Harlan Ellison novel called A Boy and His Dog, which was a movie early Don Johnson vehicle uh, movie about a post-apocalyptic Phoenix basin where a sort of idealized uh, uh, Midwestern town had been built underground. Um, so I, I didn't find that consciousness here, except among the closest I came to was uh, people who had a training in biological science and, and who, who studied uh, the adaptability of other species. And so they tended to look at humans the same way and, and, and find the adaptability of the Phoenix man to be wanting. Uh, in some respect, and, and so could envisage that this might be destructive in the long run. I, I don't know why this was the case, though, that uh, the people don't, don't have that dystopian view of the future. Maybe it's because we, you know, we sit in the ruins of another civilization here, um, or um, some other reason. I couldn't figure it out. No one else could either. Do you think it has to do with people's hope in technology and the idea that we technologically will be able to overcome these obstacles? Were you getting that sense at all? Um, I don't, some part of it ha probably has to do with the resident boosterism. Um, of an, I, I'm in awe of the boosterism in, in Western states. It's phenomenal to me. I mean, again, I'm from New York. I'm a transplanted European. I don't have that world view, uh, but it's, 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 uh, it's certainly a considerable element of uh, the social character here. So maybe that's part of it. Um, I don't know. Thank you. I have another question on your right. 
Hi, I'm Matt Garcia. Uh, and I live downtown, but I work in Tempe. And one of the reasons why I did that is because of the light rail. Yeah. And um, I, I know that the previous question, you, you answered that a bit about the expansion, but it's kind of a relatively new thing. Um, and I'm wondering uh, if you could tell me, uh, maybe assess the effect of the light rail uh, in Phoenix in terms of uh, bringing um, businesses uh, closer to you know where people live and 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 creating a greener environment. Mm -hmm. What has been the net effect of the light rail? Mm. Um, well, my impression is it's been a bigger success than than, than people expected. But but l l let me tell you a story about the light the the rejection of light rail in in Scottsdale, which I think is a, a, a more revealing story in some way. Scottsdale, uh, some of you may know, has, has a nationally renowned green building program. Um, and uh, almost 40% of the development during the height of the housing boom took advantage of the green building program and the incentives that were offered. And it fits very well with, uh, with what some people think of as a Scottsdale lifestyle, which is you know, very individualistic in nature. And, um, and fits very well with the sustainability culture of North Scottsdale. Um, but efforts to introduce uh, sustainable urbanism in Scottsdale have been much less successful. So there's a, very, there's a very firm demarcation line between the kind of sustainability features that would decorate an individual lifestyle and things you know, like mixed-use zoning and, and light rail and higher density and so on and so forth, which are part of the toolkit of sustainable urbanism that are considered persona non grata. And I think it's that, that the, the, the distinction between the two, which is part of what I was trying to get at in some of the arguments I was making, uh, that we have a kind of checklist uh, attitude towards sustainability that different communities can cherry pick from a whole list of things that come under the rubric of sustainability and each community will choose different things. The people in Scottsdale choose different things from say folks in downtown Phoenix. But for populations that have been um, that have been deprived of basic needs in terms of housing, education, health care and clean air and clean water, these things may seem um, like really not just luxuries, but, but almost insults when, when, you when your basic needs have not been taken care of or catered to. So that's, that's the sort of third level of non-access to sustainability that is, that is here and on display in this town. Thanks. Uh, my name's Devin Brown. Thanks for being here tonight. I'm just wondering what evidence you have that says um, uh, migration here has more to do with climate than something like NAFTA or an economic policy? I don't have any data. Um, and I, 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 I couldn't say, as you put it, I couldn't say it has more to do with the impact of NAFTA. Clearly the impact of NAFTA has been considerable and, uh, and that has been well documented. What has not been so well documented is the climate migration. Um, there are a few studies which I could point you to um, that have tried to estimate 
the number of, uh, of people who've moved out of uh, rural areas in northern Mexico as a result of desertification and drought over the last 15 years or so. How many of them have ended up in Arizona? I don't, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, that kind of interviewing. Uh, but you have to conclude that a large number have, uh, because a large number of border crossers come directly here. They don't go through cities anymore. I don't have the data, but this would be a good study for someone um, in, this, in this city to do. It would be a very interesting study. We have time for one more question. Uh, we'd like to thank Mr. Ross for being here, Arizona State University, and the Heard Museum for having us. Uh, I want to remind you that uh, Changing Hands is here selling copies of Mr. Ross's book, Bird on Fire, Lessons from the World's Least Sustainable City. Please pick up a copy at the reception, which will be held uh, when you look towards the back, towards the left, um, just out in the lobby. So please join us, have a drink, uh, have a good time, and uh, thank you for being here. Um, I'm Laurie Riddle, and Mr. Laurie Ross. Riddle is one of the great heroes of environmental <laughs> justice thank in you. this region. For those of you don't know, who don't know her, and. Um, Mainly it's not a question, but just to bring up a few points. Number one is um, I am fighting the South Mountain Freeway from coming into our community because of the pollution. And the other thing that people don't address is the cultural aspect of how important these sites are to our people. They want to carve um, three different spots in the mountain. One would be 40 stories high and 240 uh, yards wide. They want to blast through parts of this mountain that we consider sacred. There's no weight put on the, the acknowledgement of our practices throughout history, and that's why we are losing our culture, but we're trying to hold on as tightly as we can to our language, to our traditions. And I really want to thank Mr. Ross for coming out here and bringing light to all these uh, people who have contributed to the environmental and all the civil rights and everything that he's, he's put in his book. And uh, I am forever grateful to you, Mr. Ross. Thank you. Well, I'm grateful to you, Laurie. Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming, guys. We'll see you at the reception.